0: We, uh, we have a lot to cover, so uh, Tim is um, actually in the house, which is, I got to tell you, somebody, whenever you ask to step and fill in for Tim, it's always a, uh, it's Tim's Sunday school class, you know, it's a big shoes to try and fill. And, uh, and he's, he's here because he's been in Belize this whole last week with the fellows He really wouldn't be able to prepare, although I'm sure he could wing it. But the good thing is, is if you guys ask a question that's really hard, I'm going to say, well, Tim, what do you think about that? So, um, we're going to, uh, we've been studying the life of David, and we're going to continue, and uh, today we'll finish up 1 Samuel uh, chapter 31. Um, I got to ask a question, does anybody here believe in little miracles? Little miracles? Is that a possibility? I do. Lily does. So I think it's a a little miracle. I'm even even standing up here today because last Sunday, um, our daughter Becky and her husband Will McLaughlin, they went to Montana for a week. And they um, took their youngest child with them. And we had Liam and Reese, our two other grandchildren, And that we had them Sunday, and then Monday morning, we had them a whole week. Monday morning, they wake up, and they have the most incredibly horrendous cold, both of them, that you can imagine. And after I don't know how many hundreds of sneezes in the face, coughs in the eye, uh, piles of Kleenex of biblical proportions, I can say. um, Teresa, my wife, she's in home still recuperating. I always get it first. I don't have a runny nose. I don't have a cough. I don't have a cough. I got nothing. So I say that that may even go up to a medium-sized miracle. I'm just saying. I don't know. So we're going to be covering uh, 1 Samuel 31. And if time allows, and I think it will, we'll go ahead and start 2 Samuel. Uh, Tim asked me to fill in, and he did a masterful job a month ago saying this is where we should be. And he kept us on track so we, were, we would end up here today. So our focus has been on David. But you can't really know David unless you also know Saul. And uh, they're intricately intertwined throughout 1 Samuel. Today, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel will be Saul's death. But there's also two people groups that I think, to have a great understanding of who David and Saul are, you'd have to know about these two people groups. And that's the Philistines and the Amalekites. They've been throughout 1 Samuel. In fact, they're both mentioned often in the Old Testament. And so the handouts I gave you, they're, they're almost identical in that they're a map, the same map. On one side, there's some references to some uh, Bible verses. And on the other side, sh- there aren't the Bible verses. So if you start with a side that doesn't have the Bible verses, it should look something like this. And we're going to talk about the, the these two people. So Starting with the Philistines, if I were to ask, what, what are the, probably the two best-known Old Testament stories about the, a Philistine or the Philistines in relationship to Israel? What, what's the first one that comes to mind? David and, Goliath. David and Goliath. Absolutely. And then if there was a second one, if you go back a couple books more, what's probably another one? <laughs> Samson. Absolutely. I, as a kid, you always think Samson and Delilah. It's really Samson and the Philistines. That's really what it's about. So... Um, But who are the Philistines? Where did they come from? So about about 400 years before David's on the scene, about 1400 B.C., the Philistines are living in the area near Greece, the Aegean Sea. And they migrate eastward. First they come down to Egypt, and then they come. They have some conflict with Egypt, and then they move up to the coastal area right here. And they establish five city-states. Five city states. Sometimes they are referred to as a Pentapolis, Pent Five Apolis City. So these five city states are Gaza, Eshkalon, Ashod, Ekron, and Gath. And I think um, you probably recognize uh, Gaza because it's still referred to today, Gaza Strip, and then also Gath, Goliath of Gath. But we also heard of uh, somebody else in, um, in our studies in 1st uh, Samuel who else was in Gath you remember the king there King Achish chapter 27 and 29 um, Achish king of Gath and if you remember in chapter 29 the uh, Philistines are getting ready to head uh, north to fight uh, Saul and the Israelites and what happens the king of uh, Gath says come on David and does he get to go no the king says even though the king says no The commanders of the army said, nah, he's not coming. Well, I always thought, well, that's kind of strange. Normally the king tells the army, let's go. And that's how it works. But the truth is, each king was over his own little area, his own city state. So while the king of Gath controlled the area of Gath, he did not control the entire army. So that's why basically King Achish was overruled. When they moved from um, the Aegean area, they brought with them some technology. That technology was metallurgy that dealt with a certain metal. In Israel, they were still in the Bronze Age. In the Greece area, they had cracked the code on how to take iron ore and make it into a quality weapon. Um, So it was iron. Iron, you know, rock, paper, scissors, well... Iron beats this alloy of tin and copper. Bronze looks nice, and it makes a decent weapon. It's certainly better than uh, stone or wood, but it doesn't beat iron. And so that gave a distinct advantage to the Philistines for many years over everybody else by having this this, uh, iron uh, weaponry. It's kind of interesting also. Sometimes if you don't know the history of things, you, you read verses in the Bible, and you go, oh, what does that have to do? There's actually a kind of a verse that tells us a little bit about this in, uh, in um, 1 Samuel 13. It says, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, i.e. their enemies, to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening uh, plow points and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and uh, uh, repointing goads. The price there is like, okay, shekel here, shekel there. That's actually pretty expensive when you figure it's done for each one of those tools. And yet, because they're enemies, the Philistines are willing to take the Israelites' money and the Israelites are willing to pay it out. Because they didn't have the ability that the Philistines did. Um, Another side note. How long was David with the Philistines? Everybody remember reading that part? A year. 14 months. So for 14 months, David and his 600 men are with the Philistines. There's historical and archaeological findings that show about the time David becomes king that the Israelites learn, have cracked the code on how to do iron. Now, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible, and I didn't even read anything that said per se, but it seems kind of interesting that after 14 months, then David becomes king, and they have the technology, and it becomes instrumental in the fact that David, as king, destroys, uh, decimates the uh, Philistines. Once again, one of those little nuances, the background, you go, oh, okay, I can see that. Um, It was the persistent aggression against Israel that was the main factor for the, for the Israelites to cry out to God, say, we need a king. Now, they, you know, we always say, well, everybody else has a king. We want one too. But it was the Philistines that were constantly uh, the problem that caused them to call out for a king. And if we look at Saul's uh, divine commission, we see in 1 Samuel 9, verse 16, tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be my prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So that was actually Saul's commission was to defeat the Philistines. I did see it was interesting that it says prince too and not king. And that might have been that transition where God is king. um, And uh, he's just named as the prince there. So that's kind of the background on the Philistines. So now let's go to the Amalekites. (laughs) Amalekites. They get their name from... Their ancestor, Amalek. Who's Amalek? Anybody remember who he might be? I wouldn't know the answer unless I had read it. So he is, say it? Esau's grandson. Yep. So, so we have um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Jacob, God changes his name to Israel. He goes down to Egypt for about 440 years. Meanwhile, up here, Esau and Amalek they still stay up in the promised land, Canaan area. So then Moses comes on the scene, let my people go. They come back up. And as they're coming up, we can remember that the first encounter. Do you remember the story where Joshua and the Israelites are fighting the Amalekites? And exactly, every time his hands are raised, Moses' hands are raised, what happens? They win. And when they fall, they lose. And so they prop his hands up and, and they win. And it says in, um, it says in uh, Exodus chapter 17, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, and sometimes we know it as Jehovah Nissi, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Notice it doesn't say that Israel will have war. It says the Lord will have war. And then we get a little bit greater insight when we look at the end, towards the end of Deuteronomy. Chapter 25 and verse 17 It says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. You could probably read... The, uh, the, the wounded, the old women, children, the, the, the sick. And they had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you will blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. I mean, those are pretty powerful reminding words. Do not forget. What's interesting is, apart from the Bible there's no written accounts of the amalekites there's no archaeological findings that are directly attributed to the amalekites it is as if they have been blotted out were not for god's word and so it came true <coughs> so saul's relationship with the amalekites is pretty important what is his command in uh, chapter 15 of 1 samuel now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Did he do that? No. Almost, but no. <coughs> when you're talking about obedience to God, there's not really almost. It's either be obedient or not. And we see in... Uh, Verse 8, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to the destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So, what, what was Saul's justification for not? being obedient. A sacrifice, offering, yes. So he, he kind of plays that, and we see that, actually. So this <laughs> always been one of my favorite, <laughs> Samuel's response here. It's I laugh, but this is really critical. Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul said to him, hey, blessed be you the uh, to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this? Bleeding in my ear, sheep in my ears, and the lowing of oxen that I hear. <laughs> Saul, ever to make an excuse and point the figure elsewhere, he says, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. So, as it turns out, uh, that it was Saul's disobedience in this act specifically leads to his downfall and the loss of the throne. So um, with that, let's go ahead and flip over to the other side of your, um, <laughs> and, and the purpose for this side, this map here, it's the same map, but we're not going to focus on something. This is both going to be a kind of a real quick summary of where we were starting in about chapter 29, and I'm ho- and then where we'll be going today. And I'm hoping it will help give you a, a uh, better feel of the geography. So often when we read the Bible, we tend to look at it as, as chapter, verse, and sequence. And often that is the case. But the passages that we're going to be looking at up here, chapter 29, 30, 31, and then the beginning of chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, they're really, in some cases, happening at the same time. It's as if the camera can only be at one place at one time. And to tell the story, you're not able to say, you know, jumping back and forth. So that's what we're going to try and look at as this goes. So if you look at the letter A there, it says of 1 Samuel 29. This is Aphek. This is the location here where uh, the Philistines tell David, no, you're not coming. And so what happens? The Philistines, they head north up till the valley of Jezreel. David, he heads south heading back to the town that had been given to him by the king of Gath, uh, Ziklag. And then we see in uh, 1 Samuel 30 verses 1 through 8, before David can even get there, who attacks? The Malachites. The dreaded Malachites. It's okay, you guys can boo and hiss when you hear Malachites too. So So they take them. Dallas uh, and uh, David makes pursuit. They get down to the brook of Asor. And David rescues his wives, and and they recover everything, all the loot. So this has all been taking place, and as it's been taking place, meanwhile, back to the north, what's been going on? That's what we'll be covering today in uh, chapter 31. The Philistines attack the Israelites. They make a retreat up to Mount Gilboa where Saul and his sons are killed. And they eventually hang the bodies on the wall at this area here, Beth-shan, and we learn about the men of um, Jabesh Gilead, who then cross over the Jordan River, recover the bodies, and bring them back. And they end up burning the bodies uh, there in, in their town. And then we'll look at the beginning of 2 Samuel, where David has returned back to Ziklag, and he here's hears the news of, of Saul's death. So with that, let's now look at... Uh, That's a lot of history, a lot of background, but I thought it might be helpful to get a better understanding of what all has been taking place in this relationship that uh, Israel, specifically Saul and David, has had with the Philistines and the Amalekites. So chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons... And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Now, that's, that's not all the sons of Saul, but those are the ones who were old enough or were in battle there. There's actually another son who will become king for a brief period of time, Ishabeth. Uh, but these are the sons who are with Saul when they get killed. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then David said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Least these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. So did, did Saul have a good reason to be worried about what the Philistines might do to him? <laughs> yeah. Do you remember what they did when they got Samson? Yeah. Gouged out his eyes and then they would imprison him, put him in chains. And they'd like to bring him out for sport to make fun of him and everything. To be honest, that is nothing compared to, you look at the historical records, and in a mixed audience, I won't go into the graphic details of what they would do to their enemy leaders. It was horrendous. And it's likely the Philistines would have done the same thing with them. So continuing on, but his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. That's important, feared greatly. What, what, What did he fear? The armor bearer feared something. They feared what? Uh, God. Well, I mean, David made such <clears throat> a that he wouldn't hurt Saul. Right. And that had to have gotten yeah, God's anointed. The Lord's anointed. Absolutely. So we have the armor bearer whose whole job is basically to not just carry the armor, but almost as the bodyguard. And Saul, his king, is commanding him to do something. No. He feared greatly. <laughs> Therefore, Saul took his own sword And fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. (laughs) Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men. It doesn't mean all of the men of Israel, it means all of his men that were with him there (laughs) on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. That almost sounds like a snapshot of, in time, like, you know, they run off and the Philistines come rushing in. Well, they actually occupy it for, I think, more than a couple years. And it takes a period of time till after David becomes king when they are actually able to get the Philistines out of these occupied cities. Verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and the people. Did you notice, that, did you, something kind of straight, sound funny there when I was reading it about the good news? If we look at the, the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It uh, was written about 200 years B.C. They actually used the word, the messengers went out and spread the gospel. And they use the word euangelion. That's the Greek word for gospel or good news. And it just seems rather like it, it doesn't ring in my ear right to hear about the good news. But it's a good reminder the good news isn't famous sayings or teachings. The good news is, hey, something's been done for you. Our gospel is what? Jesus has done something for us. And through what he did, our lives should never be the same. Well, the Philistines, they have good news. Their gospel is, hey, our enemy that's been, you know, pain for us, we've killed him. This is good news. This is the gospel. The gospel according to the Philistines, I guess you could say. <laughs> Okay, continuing on, verse 10. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. But when the inhabitants, the inhabitants of Jaboth Gilead, uh, right, remember we're talking right up here again, they're going to cross over the Jordan. They went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Uh, the, most of the commentaries I read, it says they, they didn't um, burn, you know, cremate them so there was nothing left. Because it says there were bones left. And they th- probably were doing it more because of health reasons. Um, They've been, the bodies have been up on the wall there and things were starting to happen, decay and everything else. So by burning the remaining decaying flesh off, they could then give him a proper burial there under the tamarisk tree. And something else that's kind of weird, you might remember, we're kind of first shown Saul earlier in the book of First Samuel, he's sitting under a tamarisk tree, and it, it just seems ironic that here we have him sitting under the tamarisk tree, and now his bones are being buried here under the tamarisk tree. Yes, John? Yeah, the people of, uh, Jab Bush Gilead remembers the time that Saul at of his reign rescued them from the Annaites. Did I give you my notes here? <laughs> my next question, and I kid you not, says, Why did the men of Jab Gilead rescue the remains of Saul's sons? I've had a written reading Bible reasonably for well, 40 years and you can still remember it all. That's, that's great. I, I knew you'd, if anybody was going to know the answer, John was it. And he's right. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, we see that it, this battle that, that John refers to, the Ammonites, had encircled the city of Jabesh Gilead. And they had basically said, hey, we're going to kill you all off. And uh, they, they eventually say, hey, well, if you give us a day here, I think, and, and we'll see if anybody's going to help us. And they say, okay. And in fact, Saul comes, and Saul's been declared that he's going to be king. He hasn't been coronated as king yet, so this is really his first act as a king, and it's what really propels him into the national spotlight that makes him, um, that gives him his uh, notoriety to become king. There's also one other thing that this this is kind of a bit of a rabbit hole, but it's kind of interesting. The the last two chapters of Judges talks about a civil war going on in Israel. And the civil war basically is all 11 tribes against one tribe. Do you remember which tribe is the one that's? Uh, the Benjamin. Benjamin, exactly. Benjamin did some things that were pretty bad. And as a result, they basically decimate the tribe of Benjamin to the point where they, they stop and go, oh my gosh, we're going to annihilate and get rid of an entire tribe of Benjamin. And it says there were 600 men left but they had also made a promise that they were not going to give any of their daughters to be the wives of anybody from Benjamin. So what did they do? Well, this this town up here Jabesh-Gilead, they had basically uh been on the side of the Benjamin tribe and what they do is they basically do- they they destroy the the town for the most part but there's 400 virgins in uh Jabesh-Gilead. Now 400 doesn't meet the needs of 600 but the 400 do get married to the 400 of the 600 the other 200 men they get some women from Shiloh through some games that are played but the bottom line is (laughs) Saul is a Benjaminite and we can track his historical up to a point but it's very possible in fact the odds are I guess you could say a two-thirds chance that Saul's actually related to the people of Jabesh Gilead now, we don't know that for sure, but there's a 67% chance that he is, which I thought was, well, there may be more than meets the eye here. So, um, as David's life so often points us to Christ, some, so many of the things, and that's something that Tim has emphasized, I think, time and again. There's so many things that David does that we are to look at and things that he doesn't do that we sh- he should have, but it always points to what Jesus has done in a more perf- in a perfected way. And as as David's life does this, I think Saul's death provides us some interesting comparisons and in contrasts to those of Jesus. And I got this out of a book that Chuck Swindoll did on. He did a series on different um, Bible characters, and one of them was on David. And I I kind of changed it around a little bit, but this was basically what it said, and I thought it was pretty good. Saul's death appeared to be the end of all national hope, but it really wasn't. Jesus' death appeared to be the end of all spiritual hope, but it really wasn't. Saul's death appeared to point to the final victory of Israel's adversary, the Philistines. Jesus' death appeared to show our adversary's victory over God's anointed and any future hope we might have, but it really didn't. Saul's death paved the way for a new plan of operation of God's people through David's kingly line. Jesus' death provided a new plan of operation for our salvation and especially for us as Gentiles. Saul's death ended an era of dissatisfaction and failure. Jesus' death ended the era of law and guilt and introduced grace. And, frankly, the new covenant that we now are living under. Saul's death displayed the foolishness of man. Boy, if anyone depicted that, Saul displayed the foolishness of man. And Jesus' death... and I hesitated when I wrote this, but then again, I, I thought of what the Bible does say. Jesus' death displayed, at least from a human perspective, the foolishness of God. And I say that because of what Paul tells the, first Corinthians, uh, the Corinthians in his first letter, uh, chapter 1, 20, uh, 24 and 25. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So there's this contrast between every turn, everything Saul could have done, he missed, he missed the boat. He made mistakes all along the way. And so with that, that gives us kind of the, the death of Saul. We finish up chapter 31, finish up the, first, the book of 1 Samuel. Now, um, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel in our Bible are two different books. But as originally written, they were a single scroll. And it wasn't until uh, many years later that maybe because they were too volu- uh, voluminous or too big, they, they, just, they split it. And there's a good reason they split it here. And it's something I never noticed before. But if you look at uh, Joshua 1, chapter 1, verse 1, it starts off with what? It says, after the death of Moses. Okay, so probably the most important person, maybe next to Abraham in the Jewish faith at that point. And then you get to the next cha- next book is uh, Joshua yeah. Judges. Yes. And it says Judges 1-1, after the death of Joshua. So we come to 2 Samuel, and we should turn there now, 2 Samuel chapter 1. And what does it say? After the death of Saul. So we've got this after the death of Moses, after the death of Joshua, and now we come to after the death of Saul. So there, that does make for a nice break in this uh, separating first and second Samuel. First one, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So he's, he's come back up and he remains there for two days and then On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, and his clothes were torn and dirt was on his head. Does that sound familiar to anybody about uh, somebody's clothes being torn and dirt on their head? It's a common thing to tear one's clothes. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Um, Job, it does it a lot. The last time that phrase is used, it's kind of interesting. It's actually in 1 Samuel. It's in chapter 4. And the, 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 you, can't, you could almost say at that time the leader or the just former leader of Israel was a priest, probably the high priest, and his name was Eli. So Eli, he's, he's pretty old now. He's in his 90s, I think. And Samuel has, he was the one that raised Samuel, if you remember the story at the beginning there. And in fact, the chapter just before 1 Samuel chapter 4 is the famous line where he hears God's voice and Eli tells him, well, if you hear the voice, say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And that's exactly, it was the Lord. But what's really strange is we have this um, time where Eli is sitting, waiting to hear news about the battle with the Philistines. Amen. And a man comes running up who's a messenger. Ironically, it happens to be a Benjamite, which I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. But the messenger's a Benjamite, comes running up, and Eli says, well, how'd it go? And he said, well, the Philistines, they wiped us out. They killed your two sons. And Eli hears the news. He falls over dead. And it says that Eli and his sons died the same day. And this is a message-giving message giving by a guy who happens to have his, clo- t- his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And it's the exact same word for word that we see here that the Amalekite is described at. So we continue on there. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where did you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. So what does da- What does this messenger expect David's reaction to be based on what we've seen? Yeah. What? Yeah. Hey, that guy that's been trying to kill you for all these many years, he's dead. Guess what? Now you get to be king. I mean, this is great news. Is that what's going to happen? Uh, no. Let's, can, uh, let's continue on. Verse 5. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. There was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, The chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here am I. And he said to to me, who are you? And I answered, I am am an Amalekite. And he said to him, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. Um, there's a saying that usually is, you need to know your audience. And um, sometimes, you know, if we're talking to a group of people or whether we're talking to um, an individual, do you think this messenger knew his audience? Yeah. <laughs> No, David in particular, he didn't, he didn't know. What's been David's constant theme, his constant stance? Stuart's already mentioned it. What was that constant stance about killing Saul? He's God's anointed. God's going to take care of the situation in God's time. So what's wrong with the details of the story that we've just heard the Amalekite tell when we compare it to the end of chapter 31? We he his Say again we thought he died on his boat. well that's what the bible says in chapter 31 and yet we hear this this amalekite so what gives here is which account do we thinks right john you got your hand up uh, basically the amalekite lied that uh, again know your audience and thought uh, they <coughs> like that i think you're right john i think he was lying i mean it it says outright in chapter 31 that he fell on his sword and he died. And when his armor bearer saw that he died, didn't appear to die, he died. I I think that's exactly the case. I think most likely that the Somalekite was probably a scavenger on the battlefield, um, was looking for opportunities to, you know, get some booty, get some stuff. Comes upon, he might have even saw get killed and takes the stuff, and then again, not knowing his audience, oh, man, this is, this is going to be worth a lot. If nothing else, David's going to probably elevate me to some great position. There's two problems with, three problems with this, actually. A, what he's saying is a lie. B, what he's saying is not going to sit well with David. And three, he's an Amalekite. I don't want to sound like Joe Biden there. I'm sorry. That was He's 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 an Amalekite. <laughs> So um, I guess the question could be is who actually ca- uh, killed Saul? Well, if we're going to look at it, if in 1 in Chronicles, we have kind of a side-by-side comparison of what's going on, 1 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. And in 1 Chronicles 10, 13, it tells us, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the commandment of the Lord. And also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So I guess in some ways, the bottom line is it was the Lord's timing. It was the Lord's doing that Saul would die. So continue on in verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. Notice he's not just mourning Saul and Jonathan. It says he's mourning for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where did you come from? And he answered, it's almost like he said, now let me get this straight. I've already asked this once, but where did you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, a, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? You remember the bodyguard? What did it say? He greatly feared. And David saying, how is it that you we're not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So question that often comes up was, is, was David justified in killing this Amalekite message, or what? What are the thoughts? How many think David was justified, and how many say he wasn't justified, and how many are how many are not sure? <laughs> yeah, that's actually a great question because there's there's a lot of different uh, perspectives on that. Um, I tend to lean that he was justified for a couple reasons, maybe three. One is it's not. It's, there's nothing to indicate. Oftentimes, but not always. Oftentimes, when somebody does something wrong in the Bible, it says that he erred, he sinned, he should not have. There was, you know, there's something. And there's no indication at this point, at least, that that it's saying that David should not have done it. He was, he sinned, and by his own testimony, even if he's lying, even if he's telling, if he's telling the truth, by his own words, he said that he killed Saul. And in my, in, in David's mind, that's enough. Yes. Kate? Tell them to, uh, just completely wipe. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And my next note says, but even if he was lying, the fact he was an Amalekite. Did I give out all the handouts there? This is fascinating. Uh, you guys are just smart people. That's all I say. Even if uh, he uh, was lying, the fact he was an Amalekite would be justification enough from God's original commandment. We saw that. Um, that mandate that uh, they were to put this people to death. So if we're going to look at these, uh, at the life of Saul now as we wrap up, um, I think there's one verse that really jumped out to me that kind of best summarizes Saul's life. And this was one of the times when David spared his life, he said it. But in 1 Samuel 26, verse 21, he said, Behold, I have played the fool. And committed a serious error. It appears to me that Saul, for the most better part of his entire life, he played the fool. I mean, every opportunity, it seems like he could have made the right choice and he didn't. And I think the greatest lesson that we can learn from Saul's life, one of my favorite verses. Um, 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22 and 23. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? In this part, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Now, I always focused on that part, and that is my favorite part, but because of the study we've been doing in this class, this next verse kind of jumped out at me. For rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft witchcraft, divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. (laughs) Who's who's saying these words right now? Samuel. Samuel, And he's talking to Saul. He's a prophet. I don't think even as a prophet he could have envisioned that he's saying to him, yeah, you should have obeyed. And what does it say? That the rebellion is like the sin of divination. And if you look, what happened in chapter 28? (laughs) He goes... And he goes and actually has this witch medium do divination. And who does he raise? From, who gets raised from the dead? Samuel. I mean, think of the irony. In chapter 15, Samuel saying rebellion is just like divination. Fast forward, and he get, it actually happens this way. It was like, oh my gosh, God's got a sense of humor sometimes. And it, it was it reminded me of one of Tim's favorite sayings: "There's treasure in there." And, Sometimes we can dig and find it. That just jumped out at me. And it would appear, at least for me, that David learned um, from Saul's life how important it was to obey that obedience is better than sacrifice. He learned it from Saul's mistakes. There's the old saying, a smart person learns from his mistakes, a wise person learns from others' mistakes. And I think he did. But I think it was also David's walk with the Lord that taught on this. And he, he actually captures this theme of obedience in a couple of his psalms. Um, first one at the top, Psalm 40. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. Do you remember what it says about the new covenant coming, that the law will be written on our hearts? It's almost as if David is starting to look forward to that. And then his famous uh, psalm, Psalm 51, that takes place after his, his great sin with Bathsheba, where he's repenting. Once again, the difference between David and Saul is this heart of repentance. And he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. So for our study this, this, in this class, we've been looking at the life of David and all the people, characters, Saul, Samuel, everybody that's intertwined with it. But the whole focus has really been to look to who? to jesus the coming anointed one and it it, it it would seem to me that jesus took this same lesson about obedience and he took it to its ultimate conclusion he said to obey is not only better than sacrifice but by obeying i'm going to become the sacrifice and he actually becomes our sacrifice and dies for us so that we can have that victory that we now get to enjoy and that death even on the cross So that pretty much takes us through the end of 1 Samuel. We've just started to wade into 2 Samuel, and Tim will take us next. What we'll be covering will be uh, David's. David does this incredible lament for Saul and for Jonathan, and that's where we'll pick up next in uh, chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. (coughs) All right. Thank you.